Thanks, Brandon. We were very close together during that prayer. Did you notice that? (laughs) Guys, I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving like my family did. We spent four days with family and we talked about things to be thankful for and we talked about Jesus. I promised my Aunt Melanie I would say hi to her. So put me on camera one. Hi, Aunt Melanie. And now I'm not welcome anymore. But, you know. but I'm glad for the opportunity to be with you today um, to uh, teach the Word of God, especially this, this priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. But before I begin, I want to say um, I love being your worship pastor here at Capshaw. These, the people in this room have over the years become my family, family that we grow with and learn with. And um, I love and cherish the discussions we have um, before and after times that I, I speak or just any other time. We have a lot of people that love to think about their faith here. And um, so anyway, if you If you're a person that we don't know each other yet, or if you ever have a question, or you wish to discuss anything further, my brothers and my my brothers, especially on the elder team, and I always share an affinity um, for discussing matters of faith and doctrine. So, and I'll talk to you forever if you feed me. So, if you take me to lunch, I will always meet with you. You already know that. I will find the Italian women in the congregation and get them to cook for me, but that's just... (laughs) Anyway, um, you can always find me. I have... um, You can contact me through capshaw.org or my email address, chris.moncrief at capshaw.org anytime. Um, You can get in touch with me about anything, whether it's just to tell me how good the message is today, something like that. Or if you, have an, if you have a complaint or anything you're unhappy with, you can email brandon.bentley <laughs> at capshaw.org, and he will, he will see to you. Um, but let's, let's begin by going to the Lord in prayer this morning. God, in this season of thanksgiving, keep us mindful of your abundant provision. As we enter the holiday season, we pray that you will keep us focused on you rather than upon the materialism that can infiltrate this season. Father, I pray for the right handling of your word this morning. God, I pray that I will proclaim truth and then simply get out of the way that they, that your word through the Holy Spirit may convict and strengthen us today. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So a few months ago when I heard we were going to be preaching this particular sermon series on what Jesus prayed, I immediately was reminded of a story involving my daughter Raven now, before I tell you this story, I would like to let you know that my, my daughter absolutely hates being the center of attention, much unlike her father. <laughs> but, 
But this story is from years past. And it, it started one day when I received a, a message from a concerned Sunday school teacher, which those are always great to get. But I received a message from a concerned Sunday school teacher. Raven was about seven, seven years old at the time. And apparently Raven had said something troubling some troubling things in the question and answer time in class. And the teacher worried that Raven might not fully understand who, who God is. And the teacher encouraged me to follow up with her. And unfortunately, in this lengthy message was no mention of exactly what Raven had said. So I, I messaged uh, the Sunday school teacher back and I asked for specifics. Let me know what she said so I kind of know where... To begin, and so as I as I waited for a reply, my curiosity um, got the better of me, and I decided to talk to my daughter directly to ask to ask her what she had asked in class. I said, "Raven, did you ask a hard question in Sunday school this morning?" She said, "Yes." And I said, "What did you ask?" And she goes, "I want to know why Jesus prayed. If he's the Son of God, why did he need to pray? If he is God, was he praying to himself?" Yeah. A few minutes later, I heard back from the Sunday school teacher, and she confirmed that those were the questions that Raven was asking. And I, I kind of chuckled, and I said, just out of curiosity, what did you tell her? And she said, I told her to ask you. <laughs> so through this series of learning what Jesus prayed, we have along the way learn some of the why Jesus prayed, and hopefully we'll learn more about that today. Our, our text today is found, uh, is the final verses of Christ's priestly prayer. It's found in John 17, verses 20 to 26, if you want to turn there. Many would argue that while the prayer contained in Matthew 6 has become, and, and Luke 11 has become known as the, the Lord's prayer, the Lord's Prayer was something that was taught to disciples kind of as a prayer for pattern. You could argue or maintain that John 17 is actually the Lord's Prayer and that this particular prayer gives us a glimpse, as we have learned in recent weeks, of the intimate relationship that Jesus Christ the Son shares with God the Father. And we have little content from Jesus, from his numerous prayers to the Father, making the detail of this account very precious to the reader. So let's start by reading our text today, John 17, um, verses 20 through 26. We read in ESV usually here, unless otherwise um, notified. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. In them and you in me, that they become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, 
may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So elsewhere in Scripture, uh, we see within verse 4 of this prayer that Jesus had begun using language that indicated, it indicated his earthly mission was, was coming to an end. In 17.4, uh, Jesus says, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work you gave me to do. He was preparing to return to heaven, preparing to return to the Father. Uh, John 13, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to be with the Father. Christ's earthly mission of redemption and revelation is fulfilled when Christ from the cross cries out to Telestai, it is finished, it is completed, it is done. It has been brought to an end. John 17 reveals a transition from the earthly ministry of Jesus to his session or his intercessory ministry for believers. Adam, last week when leading a prayer, spoke of Jesus Christ interceding on our behalf. He was to return to the Father to take his place as our mediator, our advocate, Pleading our case before the Father. Again, this is known as Christ's session. Hebrews 7 speaks of this. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So on to verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their Word, those who will believe. That's, that's us. How amazing is it that we made it into the Bible? How amazing is it that Jesus prayed this for us? All of the saved are included in this prayer. This is just before his betrayal, just before his crucifixion. Christ was thinking of and praying for us. And just as much as he knew his disciples, Jesus was praying for, for Lynn, for Ben, or for Adam, for Sarah. The one and only flock that, compromise, that comprises Christ's church, which is the collection of all true believers. So I'm going to use a word here, and I, I, don't, I don't desire any hate mail, but when we speak <laughs> um, of the church spanning denomination, language, nationality, tradition, and time period, the, the word we use for that universal church is Catholic, not, not the Roman Catholic Church. Unfortunately, we have allowed that term to be claimed. And when we refer to all of Christ's believers as Catholic, we were referring to the 
whole body of believers through history, not the Roman Catholic Church, who, by the way, still believes that human priests are mediators between man and the Father. No, we are speaking of the one true body of believers from across the world and through generations past and future. And, and Jesus is praying for those. He's praying for those that will believe in him through their word. So whose word? Here Jesus is praying for his disciples. Those who would go out into the world proclaiming Christ. Following Pentecost and with the power of the Holy Spirit, Christ's chosen apostles would go into the world. They would teach the word of God. They would teach the personal accounts of Jesus. Empowered by the Holy Spirit with knowledge and insight, the words they spoke carried authority through the Holy Spirit. They were empowered to the miraculous so that people could see and believe. In John 10, Christ would say that his sheep hear his voice. And through the apostles' teaching, many heard his voice and they were converted. Many came to believe through the proclamation of the gospel. This season of apostles and their teachings, this was the earliest days of the church. In verse 6 and verse 14 and verse 17, Jesus refers to the word when referring to the Father. In verse 6, he says, Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. In verse 14, he says, I have given them your word. In verse 17, he says, Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And now, in verse 20, Jesus refers to those who will believe in me through their Word. In this age of the apostles, with this, they had first-hand knowledge of Jesus. This is how the sheep would hear Jesus' voice. Through the word of God delivered by the apostles. That brings us to our first point. When the word of God is proclaimed, the Holy Spirit is at work. One. Stirring within the heart of the lost a desire to know God. And two, edifying and sanctifying the believer. We're going to have four points, by the way, this morning. As the church grew through the preaching and the hearing of the gospel, led by the Holy Spirit, these chosen apostles would write down historical accounts of Christ's life, recounting his messages and his many miracles, and as later as conflicts arose in the church, these, these, these apostles would write letters, and they would circulate them through various churches and regions. These writings would come together to become our New Testament, completing God's holy and perfect word. So, so after Christ's ascension to heaven... How then do his sheep hear his voice? After the apostles die, how do we, the sheeple, hear the word of God? In a sense, we hear it in the exact same way. Through the word of God delivered by the apostles. In this church age, 
the word of God is written down, widely distributed. And we, the sheep, hear the shepherd's voice through the right teaching of his word, through the proclamation, the true proclamation of the gospel. Each time the word of God is taught or read, his sheep hear his voice. Chris Rosebro does a show called Pirate Christian Radio where he identifies false doctrine and things like that. And he, This is something he said almost in jest one time. And it was, if you want to hear God, read your Bible. If you want to audibly hear God, read your Bible out loud. And that's, that's what we're doing today. We are, we are learning. We are hearing the word of God taught. And we cannot underestimate the importance of reading and studying the word of God. And brothers and sisters, how often do we, <laughs> do we fail to make time for the word of God? It's sometimes the very last thing on our agenda. We can, we can find times for things that are truly important to us. We make time for family, for recreation, and for work. We can spend hours chauffeuring our children from activity to activity. We can somehow manage to stay up to date on every play, every score, every injury, every piece of recruiting news for our favorite college football team. We can carve out hours to spend on social media. We can do all of this while working 50 hours a week. But when it comes to reading the Word of God for 20 minutes, we just throw our hands up and say, I just don't have the time. John Piper writes, Belief in Jesus does not come by waving a magic wand. It comes by hearing the Word of God through Jesus. But instead, we substitute. We say things like, Well... I don't really read my Bible. I just kind of take moments to meditate throughout the day, and that's how I grow in my faith. Or I can sit and watch a sunset and grow closer to God in my knowledge of Him. Or one of my favorites, I draw close to God in a deer stand. And, and I want to be clear, uh, nature in its beauty and splendor and family and love, competition, the, these are all blessings from God, and they are meant to be enjoyed. These are the so-called uh, natural revelations of God, and they are available for all. They proclaim a creator. But the problem comes when we, when we replace the study of God's word with an earthly pleasure. There's nothing about a sunset or a Boone and Crockett buck that tells a lost person they're a sinner that deserves hell. That they're in desperate need of a savior. Only the word of God proclaims that. Again, there's nothing wrong with these things. They're gifts from God, but they're no substitute for hearing God's word. Our relationship with God is a, is a personal one. And God says for us not to separate faith from the word in Romans 10 very clearly. So faith comes from hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. Moving to verse 21. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
And as believers, we unite around the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus desires unity amongst all believers. And the unity is to come from a common belief in the true gospel of Jesus Christ as revealed in the pages of Scripture. That leads directly to our our second uh, point this morning. Gospel truth and gospel fidelity provide the foundation of Christian unity. And it's a unity that is visible to the outside world, not a, a unity that is kept concealed. You know, it, over in the, in the Mormon religion, there's a secret handshake that Mormons tell other Mormons that they're Mormons by the way they, they, they shake hands with each other. But God desires our unity to be visible, nothing to be secret here. Why? Verse 21, so that the, word, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. But our sinful nature, our prideful, disunifying, sinful nature leads to disunity and tribalism. Think of the things that churches have divided over. Churches have split over things like money, style of dress, tradition, music preference. That would never happen here. Preaching style or activities activities offered. We are just we're prone to protest, right? We're Protestants. That's what the name literally means. We are a people of protest. And while all along Jesus desires unity bound in scriptural truth, we Christians fall so quickly into showing our love for God by what we oppose. Do we, do we stand against the right things? I'm against, you'll say something, that we'll, we'll say something like, I'm against abortion, I'm against gay marriage, I'm against liberal theology, and Christians do and should reject sinful institutions. But the, understand, there are plenty of godless people destined for hell that oppose the same things you and I do. Our Christian unity does not come from what we oppose. It comes from what we uphold. We unite behind the word of God. Regardless of how crazy our culture is becoming, we speak gospel truth. And things like racial harmony, sanctity of human life, the holy covenant of marriage. These are results of the gospel, not causes of the gospel. And on the other hand, we, we cannot throw doctrine out the window and hold hands and sing kumbaya, right? There, there are areas of doctrine upon which there simply can be no compromise. In, in today's theology of this world, simply to call something sinful is looked at as an act of hate. The cancel culture of today values uniformity over unity. To avoid being canceled or, reject, or rejected, one is bullied to accept a very specific and narrow dogma. A religion of the flesh where sin is exalted and virtue is literally spat upon. This 
age of political correctness or wokeism, whatever you want to call it, it brings with it a vicious tribalism engineered to destroy any and all that dare speak of moral absolutes. But the fatal flaw of this belief system or any other false religion is that the follower is seeking to glorify themselves rather than glorifying an all-powerful God. So as believers, to be unified, we do not need the same skin color or the same language or the same education. We do not need the same finances, the same interests, the same nationality, or even the same politics. We simply need the same Jesus. Christ's church spans much of our earth and it is growing. It is multi-ethnic. It is cross-cultural. It includes the rich, the poor, the imprisoned, the free, the healthy, and the sick. Nothing on earth is as diverse. Yet we are to be known by our unity. But we must understand that unity does not come from our commonality. It comes from our common Savior. We must be careful not to attempt to harmonize the gospel with the world we live in and then call that watered-down belief system unity. We do not not love a people by watering down God's word in an attempt to be more sensitive, nor do we want to seek a least common denominator, if you will, of faith with, with professing believers who may have non-biblical doctrine. Don Carson writes, this is not simply a unity of love. It is a unity predicated on adherence to the revelation of the Father mediated to the first disciples through His Son, the revelation they accepted and passed on. Our unity in the truth keeps the message of the gospel from being sullied. And then twice Jesus says that others will believe that God has sent him based on how unified in the gospel we are. Psalm 133, this is one of my favorite verses. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like precious oil, oil on the head, running down on the beard. That sounds fantastic. It's meant to be observable, evidenced by love that is joyful and selfless. And something I love here at Capshaw, my family has been here for eight and a half years now. And you guys, in many ways, are my family. You're certainly my church family. Some of my best friends I've ever had and some of the people I love the most are in this room right now. And I I think, how exactly did that happen? I'm a musician. I love to sing and write and get up at 11. I mean, that's, those are, those are, those are things that I love. And My best friends engineer software and put things into orbit around the earth. They work on missiles and guidance systems. You people do math and organize things for fun. (laughs) I do neither of those for fun. Apart from Christ in our lives, we often 
seek out people like us, people with the same interests, the same habits, the same lifestyle. Ten years ago, had someone told me, okay, you're going to be leading a team of musicians comprised largely of engineers. I would have thought you were telling me a joke and I'd have been waiting for the punchline on the other end. But through the gospel of Jesus Christ, you see, God has united us and we all love each other as a result. The differences we have in approach or methodology, we see those differences as endearing rather than divisive, usually. <laughs> but we have, we have unity within the gospel. There's a supernatural unity within this universal church. It is unpacked more in Ephesians 4, verses 2 through 6. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So we move to John 17 and verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. For, for Jesus, glory came from a path of lowly service culminating in the cross of Calvary. So the believer seeks humble service, and we put our total trust in God's sovereignty. Glory is defined as a manifestation of God's magnificence, his character, or his power. For us, Jesus Christ has mediated the glory of God. Our third point, Jesus compares believers' unity with the eternal unity found within the Trinity. Not the same infinite and divine extent, but the spiritual power that belongs to the Trinity belongs in some way to believers and is the basis for church unity. In John 14, we read, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. The Father and the Son are one, yet they are distinguishable from one another. We read in Scripture that through Jesus all things were made, and without him nothing was made. The Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father. The Son, being 100% God, prays to the Father, who is 100% God. The Son submits to the Father. The Father sends the Son. The Son obeys the Father. At the same time, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one in that they are God. It's easy to fall into a, a false teaching, one that I was actually taught as a child, that, that God is simply one person that takes different forms. Sometimes he's the Father, sometimes he's the Son, sometimes he's the Holy Spirit. That's a, that's a heresy known as is modalism, and, and it, it's gaining traction these days. It's easier for us to wrap our mind around, I think. But we know that in reading our Bibles, this particular line of thinking is an error as evident in John 1, 
where the pre-incarnate Christ, here referred to as the Word, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Three distinct persons, one Savior, the creator and sustainer of the universe. Similarly, believers can be different from one another, distinct from one another, submitting to one another, loving one another. Through the Holy Spirit, believers participate in the attributes of God. John 17, verse 23. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. This is the amazing part. Believers are actually part of and share in the love the Father has for the Son. I put an exclamation point in my notes, y'all. You need to do the same or the little underlined things. The same love with which God loves his son is the same love with which he secures your eternal salvation. God is not simply loving. God is love. And that is blessed assurance. We say all the time, we recite our beliefs and doctrine. When God looks at one of his children, he sees not their sin, but he sees Jesus Is it not amazing grace to know that one day when you stand before a holy God, he will not simply overlook your sin. He will look upon you as though he was looking at Jesus Christ. And this verse proclaims that God, in loving you, he does so in the same eternal and perfect love that the Father has for the Son. So how does this revelation not bring us to a perfect unity? Can't we, can't we have disagreements about uh, infant baptism or uh, eschatology, pre-mill, post-mill, all-mill stuff, and, and still be on a path to perfect unity? And, and isn't it sobering to think that our most useful witness to the outside world is not our ability to articulate complex doctrine or theological depth, but rather our ability to be unified in the one and only gospel. We often talk about churches that choose an attractional model. There's there's nothing more attractional than unity. Matthew Henry writes... The uniting of Christians in love and charity is the beauty of their profession and invites others to join with them. When Christianity, instead of causing quarrels about itself, makes all other strifes to cease, in particular, it will beget in men good thoughts of Christ. They will know and believe that thou hast sent me. Mr. Henry was going King James there. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Those you have given me, those are the the elect, those that are saved. 
that they may be where I am. And where Christ is, is seated at the right hand of the Father. So now he's praying for us to be with him in heaven, observing the glory he had before the foundation of the world. So what more security can we have as believers than to know that Christ prays for us to be in heaven with him? And his prayers get answered. Our fourth point. Christ desires that his unified church should long to be with him. In our sinful flesh, we do not always long for heaven. If you've ever traveled to a third world country um, and done any sort of, in any sort of work there, you've, you've met people for which this world has nothing, has nothing to offer them. There's nothing they live for in this world, they are, their life is focused around a longing to be with Jesus in heaven. But here in America, or even here in the South, we sometimes prefer this world to heaven. I heard said, I was at, um, I was at, at Rosie's having lunch one time, and I heard a guy sitting at another table say, they were, they were kind of talking about... Um, Heaven and the afterlife and death. And he said, well, I hope heaven has 50-yard seats at Bryant-Denny Stadium. (laughs) See, we do to the good fortune of our nationality. We often do not know what it is to long for heaven because we're content right here. I'm going to say something that's never been said from this pulpit before. Are there any Bocephus fans here this morning. There's some. Hank Williams Jr. Hank Williams Jr. once wrote a song, If Heaven Ain't a Lot Like Dixie, I Don't Want to Go. If Heaven Ain't a Lot Like Dixie, I Just Assume Stay Home. If they ain't got a Grand Ole Opry like they do in Tennessee, you just send me to hell or to New York City, it'd be about the same to me. That's funny, right? Um, Being a musician... I've spent time in Nashville, and I assure you there's, there's nothing heavenly about it. <laughs> I can also assure you that hell is immeasurably worse than New York City. But these are, are ditches on the side of the road that we often veer into, valuing this life, celebrating false beliefs and some sort of southern pride, some sort of good old boy theology, whereby we have the arrogance to compare God's perfect heaven to a trapping of this sinful and fallen world. Godly believers long for heaven. We see that in 2 Corinthians. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. And most important about heaven is Jesus is there. Sure, to be absent the body is to be present with the Lord. There's no pain. There's no sickness. We will see family members, but we should really look forward to just beholding the glory of Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis once wrote, if we, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy the most probable explanation is that 
We were made for another world. And notice here as well, Jesus doesn't ask for prosperity for his people. He doesn't ask for everyone to be happy. He doesn't ask for everybody to be wealthy. He does not pray, God, let them have destiny-driven lives. He prays for unity and holiness on earth. He prays for the gathering of the saints in heaven. For the believer, the joy is the life to come, not this this temporal, fleshly existence. And here Jesus teaches us that a Christian not only should, but must yearn to be with Christ. Philippians 1 reads, For to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart to be with Christ, for that is far better. So on to verse 25. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. Righteous Father, that formal address of God the Father is only used one other time in Scripture. It's in 1711. It's only used one other time. And why suddenly are we using a term for God the Father that hasn't been used? So where are we, where are we on, the, on the timeline? Next is the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus. Judas has already gone to kind of do what he was going to do. So with the cross looming, how or is the cross righteous? We, we often wear crosses around our neck or on a tattoo or earrings or some sort of jewelry. And people will ask, what does that mean? And we'll say, that symbolizes God's love. And it certainly does. The cross is a symbol of God's love. But the cross does not just show God's love. It proclaims his righteousness. Because what's about to happen is the substitutionary atonement. A beautiful and horrifying display of God's righteousness. Where Christ will face judgment for all of our sins. And sin cannot stand before the perfect righteousness of a holy God. I don't have time to read all of Romans 3, because we got to get you back to Thanksgiving leftovers. But Romans 3 says five times that the cross revealed the righteousness of God. Our final verse, verse 26, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. God's revelatory work continues through the Holy Spirit. Followers are not simply recipients of God's love. They are transformed. They're new creations. As we grow in unity 
God's love for his son becomes our love. And here, Christ finishes by summing up the themes of his prayer. That those who will, those who will be known by the love with which the Father loves the Son. The Christmas holidays are here. And amongst all the excitement and the celebration that happens, there are often those that are suffering because they are missing people that they love. Many people struggle with loneliness around the holidays. One of the hardest feelings to deal with as a human being is loneliness. That's why one of the worst punishments for someone that's incarcerated is to be placed in solitary confinement. But God says through his word time and time again, I am with you. I am in you. I am in your midst. And in verse 26, the phrase, I may be in them, it is filled with covenantal overtones. Adam and Eve once had communion with God. Sin fractured that. At the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, God came to dwell in the midst of his people. That's in Exodus 40. And during the 40-year journey to the promised land, God would continually assure his people that he was in their midst. And Isaiah 7, 14 reads, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel. God with us. Hallie and Meg are going to lead us in a song in just a minute. But if you have never known this free gift, um, this amazing love of this God that is with us, I want you to know this morning that there is no checklist you need to complete to obtain it. There's no specific list of sins you must complete. You must quit immediately to deserve it. There's simply an imperative to believe. Believe that God sent his son to live a perfect life on earth, to be executed, to stand before a holy God with the sins of the saved upon his shoulders. He would bear God's wrath to its completion He died and was resurrected three days later. In doing so, he commuted the death sentence that we all deserve. And with his blood, he purchased for us eternal life in heaven. Believers through the power of the gospel share a common eternal unity as the body of Christ. As the church worshiping here on earth, we celebrate that soon we will worship in God's presence for eternity. Let's pray together. (laughs) Heavenly Father, as we have opened your word today, I pray that our hearts are fertile ground for your words. Father, as we go through a season of celebration, 
Let us not overlook that we are surrounded by those who need you now. Father, as we close this service singing a worship song together, we pray that the words of our mouth, the notes that we sing are pleasing to you. In Christ's name, amen.